listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. Today's conversation with Kate Houston will strike a chord with many listeners. Have you or someone you know left an unhealthy relationship? Perhaps there was addictive behavior or some sort of abuse involved. What does it take to regain your self-confidence and get back into the game of finding the right person for you and not make the same mistakes again? This has become Kate's coaching niche, titled Fabulous, Fearless, and Over 40. She's also known as the rock star librarian to the Burning Man crowd. Welcome, Kate Houston. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Well, I have a feeling this is going to be a very interesting conversation. Yes, I think so too. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity to share my story and my work with everybody that's listening today. Well, I'm, I'm so happy to do it. So let's start with your story. Good segue. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> Well, there's so many pieces to it. I have, uh, I think the, the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is because I experienced um, some relationship turmoil that I think a lot of women can relate to if they have had patterns in their relationships where there were roller coaster emotions up and down and it wasn't calm and centering, but more tumultuous mm -hmm. and maybe repeated that uh, experience where they may have seen a different man walk up and show up in their lives with a different face, but the same patterns of personality mm -hmm. and just feeling stuck on how to break that pattern. Uh, the women that I help are really amazing because generally they're powerhouse women out in the world doing amazing things, business women, giving of their time to communities, but somehow that personal peace with relationship is not quite clicked into place. And there's just wonderful ways to gently I like to say gently because usually the relationships that were tumultuous, <laughs> that we have mm -hmm. a gentle way of exploring and unfolding some of our own realities when we do work together uh, with them as, a, as I coach them through some opportunities to become aware of the patterns and also to not feel bad, guilty, or shamed for them because we all are human and we all come to this moment in time based on the experiences of our past in our lives. And then some of those things we have no control over, our childhood and how we grew up and the experiences that came from those definitely play a role in our adult relationships, but we don't necessarily have, you know, control over that when mm -hmm. we were young. Right. Yeah. So I know for me, my first marriage um, ended, we both drifted in different directions and we were young and we didn't really know how to work on a relationship, frankly. The people who come to you, do most of them, have they come out of really dysfunctional relationships or is, is does it vary a lot? Well, I think that everybody in the end, unless they have an awareness and commitment to doing work, I don't think any of us have probably had a completely perfect, healthy, good relationship model growing up. Even mm -hmm. if it was good, mm -hmm. there were probably still indicators in some way, shape or form that we could improve upon. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't beat yourself up if you don't feel like you're doing it right, because we don't, the tool belt that we all were receiving growing up, everybody's relationship, parents' relationships, even if there's certain things that are amazing, there may be other areas that were not so amazing. So it's the human condition. And our goal is to, I think, for my, myself, is to help women work through those patterns mm -hmm. and identify them so that they can become aware and awaken and say, I want to change this, this sort of ancestral DNA of how I am in relationship so that I don't pass it down for the next generation, whether you're having children or it's just part of the collective human condition by the universe, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. it affects that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Are there any, any particular models that you use when you're working with people? Well, I have some things that I particularly like to look at because for me they worked and I think uh, most coaches are the best things that they share and teach are the things that helped them through their own experiences. Absolutely. So to back up a little, sure. my specific story is that I had a, a second marriage that ended up being very tumultuous with a person who, uh, when they were a child, had been through abusive relationship with their mother. Mm. And it was, an, it was an alcoholic relationship. There was never, I don't think, the full healing from that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, there might have been peace in some way, but there was not a, a, a resolve per se. Okay. So when you don't have that, and it, it will it will brew in the relationship. And we oftentimes pick our our matches that we draw to us are connected to what is familiar to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the DNA is supposed to be different. Our pheromone desires are connecting differently, but we look for familiar indicators that feel safe. So our, our experiences create the safety. But if we grew up with dysfunction, safety does, feels like safety, but it's not really safe, right? It's right. familiar. And so we think that we're drawn to that. And that's where some of that pattern making happens where we think, I didn't think I'd have that same relationship that I used to have in my family. But if we don't do some of the work to heal that or to be conscious of it, then it can create the pattern again. And so for me specifically, and I think this is true for so many people, and I have met so many women who have told me this story that they have grown up with family members in alcoholism in particular Mm -hmm. and with codependent relationships. Because usually if there's an alcoholic in the family, there's a codependent because it's just this pairing that happens in unawareness. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's stop there for a moment and describe really what, because we codependent is, is bantered about a lot. What is a codependent relationship? Well, I think it's when two individuals are not able to live interdependently as independent people, but giving each other the space and dignity to independently uh, thrive mm-hmm. and that okay. there's an unconscious, let's see, an unconscious connection between the two to one may play victim and the other plays caretaker. There's a couple different models. Mm-hmm. That one is the one that's most familiar to me and I see come up most. Okay. Or that the, the, the caretaker, the person who loves the alcoholic mm-hmm. becomes caretaker because there's a perceived need to save the alcoholic without mm-hmm. the discussion. It's an unspoken expectation by one. And usually when you have dysfunction in the alcoholic, if they're not doing all the things, they may easily let the person do things that they could naturally do. Mm-hmm. And they don't allow them to have the natural consequences of their choices, which is really taking away the opportunity for them to live with dignity for a mm-hmm. codependent to take over tasks or you know, hiding situations and feeling ashamed of it, that that just keeps the mystery going on and the story secret going on. Mm -hmm. So they're playing the rescue role. They're the rescuer. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And for Mm -hmm. me, my family on both sides, my, my mom and my dad, and I have to say this, I'm very grateful that they did not drink. They changed that pattern. They were not drinkers, Mm -hmm. but they definitely brought in behaviors that I learned as a child of how they interacted because of their parents being alcoholics. So I thank them for not bringing that in. And it was my job, of course, then to do my work to shift out of the unawareness of the codependent behaviors I was picking up on and playing into in this other relationship. But I did have those. I became the caretaker in my family of being perfect, mm. trying not to make waves. Mm. Those are the types of things that I would do. I think when you're child mind, you try to create a scenario that makes sense. And a child mind's making sense is completely different than a, a broader understanding when you're an adult. So we make up something that fits for the moment in childhood because that's what we're trying to understand in, in the model of that moment. Then we bring those childhood beliefs in that very small world that we live in as a child into adulthood and relationship without tweaking it, without the awareness there. It's brought in and then we repeat those patterns. Interesting. So so you find then that that the people that you work with um, are this this is kind of a, a pattern that they're they're generally showing. Oh, I would think so because I, law of attraction, I mean, I knew, yeah. <laughs> I knew when I started coaching that absolutely I would draw to me women who had left relationships, whether it was an alcoholic who didn't want to get help or maybe had, and this didn't work out, you know, they left that relationship and they almost were like, I don't even want to date. It's better to be single than repeat that. So I don't want to. And mm. then they get to a point of, I want a relationship, 
and I'm a little nervous because I don't have tools. So they're ready to test the waters, dip their toes in again. <laughs> and then working with me, we're able to talk about some of those things and tread lightly and, and build self-trust. I know that's one of the things that is so important and was important for me was to build my own self-trust because I too questioned, how can I possibly date again if I, I don't want to bring this into my life again, right? Right. You don't want to keep repeating the no. dysfunctional patterns. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, self-trust was you pick a way to build self-trust in small ways. Everybody may have something different. For me, when that second marriage ended and my uh, husband did not want to choose the sobriety route that I was wanting, he chose something different. Okay. I proceeded to find little ways to trust in myself. And one of those things was to be consistent because I had to do a lot of taking time in the last, the, those years following the breakup of that relationship to be accountable for my own behavior in that relationship, mm-hmm, <laughs> which mm-hmm. it takes, it takes some humility to step back and say, it takes two, it takes right. two people. Right. Right. So that I could really look at that and say, oh, I could see how I was caretaking and didn't say no. Or in particular, I didn't have a boundary or even if I had a boundary that it wasn't strong and consistent. Mm-hmm. So of course, then when I had a strong and consistent boundary of saying I would like sobriety in our relationship so we can move and break this pattern, it sounded like an ultimatum to him. And I can completely understand that perspective now because Mm -hmm. I didn't have a boundary that I held in the past before it got to an extreme. Got it. Mm -hmm. And for me, the consistency I needed to do after that was how can I possibly trust myself to pick somebody different And how can I create my own boundary for me? If I can keep a boundary for me Mm -hmm. and be consistent at it, just me, then maybe I can do it with another person. So for me, I decided to do yoga for 100 days. I just thought, let's start with that. Wow. You mean every day for 100 days? Yes. And did you do it? I did. And then when I hit 100 100 days, I said, I wonder what if I could do a year. Can I do a day a year with a, a daily yoga practice? Wow. Good for you. And so I just tried and decided that the commitment and the consistency to me, if I could do that, to have the boundaries for me, my boundary was, okay, I'm going to make sure I get up every day. If I can't do it at night, I will get up early at five o'clock. My commitment to me, my boundary is, this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. and just do it. And I think that rebuilt my self-trust incrementally, day by day, along with all, of course, the wonderful yogi quips and, and tips that someone gives. I would have classes that I would go to, and I also did it at home mm-hmm. just for my schedule flexibility with kids because I do have kids and mm-hmm. school and activities to fit that all around. So it was really important to create that self-care for me um, it was doing something joyful, meditative, because I'm an utter monkey mind. I can't sit still for meditation. <laughs> so the body movement of yoga and meditation was just the answer. Mm-hmm. And it would center me. And by doing that daily and showing up daily for me in a self-care way, I knew then I could have a better boundary about this feels good, this doesn't. Because I think that line of what feels good and doesn't for me gets blurred when I'm in a codependent relationship and allow that to happen, I'm taking on so many other people's emotions. I don't know where mine and theirs, that line is. It's all is blurred. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. So I just had a thought. So let's say you're coaching someone and they choose to do some practice, say like you for 40 days to, to help build their self, their trust of themselves. How, what, what, how might you coach them if they, if something happens and they can't do it? Say they, they skip a day, they start getting bummed because they, they, they didn't do it. They weren't ah. able to. <laughs> well, the idea is progress, not perfection. Mm, okay. It's, it's a beautiful, I, we're all human. There's no, and there's really, we're supposed to be breaking the perfectionism uh, and that's kind of where we fell into probably some role in childhood. Of it needed to look perfect. Mm-hmm. 
but we just need to look human and humans make mistakes. Humans fail, but we get back up. And that's the story. That's the hero story of getting up with resilience and continuing. I also like to remind people, our ego likes to think of numbers, think of successes that are, are absolutes. And if we're humble and compassionate with ourselves, then we just forgive ourselves mm. for that day and say, you know, I'm going to recognize why I did that. I, did I sabotage myself? Diet was I just being lazy? I mean, you can find that self inner conversation and then love yourself for the failure and for being human. And then just say, Tomorrow, I'm going to start again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, my, my one, I did 100 days solid, and then I had this struggle too. I'm glad you brought this up because doing every single day for the practice of yoga for a year, there were days that I would choose to not do yoga. Okay. Because my body needed to rest. Mm, mm -hmm. And it was all about intention. Was I choosing to not do yoga that day because I needed body rest? Or was it I was lazy? Or I was frantic? Or was it a self-care reason? Or was it an excuse? And then I would have to come to terms with my own answer to that. Good point. Good point. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. It it is about intention. Um, uh, maybe you don't feel good one day, and yeah. you just really, uh, it doesn't feel like it's right for you to put energy into doing some kind of an exercise when you should be resting. Right. Right. I have to say, I, this is really funny, and I'm happy to share it because nothing. I am not ashamed <laughs> of anything, and it's human. So, and this is how the universe plays humor on us and does a wink, you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. My 100th day of yoga, which was supposed to be the celebratory pinnacle, right? For me, when, for me, it felt like this. I was like, yes, I did it. Was the actual day I had a colonoscopy scheduled. <laughs> <laughs> so you have all that prep work to do that makes you feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I found a way to still be present and practice. I did something much more gentle than a more rigorous yoga, of course, but I mm -hmm. still did it thinking, okay, world, I get it. I get it. Don't take myself too seriously. Like don't sit on my laurels. You're giving me a little nod that life is humorous. So, okay, good. <laughs> and I think your point to see the humor in things really, really uh, helps. <laughs> levity is key. <laughs> it helps you to get over the humps because there, there are humps, there are challenges, there are roadblocks. Sometimes you can't go straight forward. Sometimes you've got to veer off to the left or the right a little bit um, and and to see the humor in it because I think we all, and, I, and I'm guilty of this just as much as anyone else, tend to take ourselves too seriously. Oh, yes. And I think too, uh, I've had an opportunity to really reflect on that second marriage and I'm so wholly grateful for it, for mm -hmm. the whole experience, now that I get to be reflective of it because of where I get to be now. I would not have made the ultimate changes that I did in my life that I, I decided were important and created the boundaries and start to practice that without having had the struggle with me, the suffering I had brought into that as well. Of course, we both brought things, but I'm being really accountable for my behavior and trying to learn and grow and seeing that by me not capturing and changing something sooner in the relationship, for whatever reason, that trust was lost and there wasn't an opportunity to rebuild it. Mm -hmm. And that's my role to take and understand so that I show up different and more accountable and communicate better in the future in relationship. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And sometimes I think often when you're, when, when something's fresh or you're, you're still in it, it's hard to see that. Oh, um, yeah. So if we can trust that nothing's by chance, that, that there is a reason that you've gone through this. And at some point you'll, you'll understand and realize how you're, how you're learning, growing, benefiting from it. Oh, absolutely. I think that's key to know there's a value to it. One of my biggest lessons, and it's like something that, that some people might say, well, of course, I totally get that. But, you know, of course, the thing that's my big lesson from that relationship was how powerful a decision is. Mm -hmm. 
and that I kept struggling and we had done some counseling and there was a variety of things we did to try and work things and it never quite fit. And at some point deciding, and that would be the boundary making, I just can't do it this way anymore. And it's either going to be this way with me or I understand if it's not. And I, I, God bless and off you go. I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. I respect your choice too. You know, you want something different in life than me. And that was wonderful to how freeing a decision is because the suffering and the stress that I had was from my indecision thinking things would change without me deciding something, right? Mm, interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then offering, hey, do you want this? You don't. Okay. That I understand. I understand. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah I well, I think because sometimes it, so it's like somebody has to make a choice. Somebody has to make a decision, yes. right? And and that can be very hard, um, especially if there are children involved or, you know, there's an entangle. I mean, your lives are all entangled. Oh, yeah. And it's not that easy to unentangle everything. Right. And so I think sometimes it's just easier it feels easier. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Cause I don't think it really is, but it feels easier just not to make a decision. Right. Or the, the, it's the thought of the decision-making and what might follow. That's the suffering. Mm. Once you do it and have to take action in the change mm -hmm. because action makes momentum and then there's flow. Got it's it. actually the actual doing of it is easier because always the thought of doing something is always worse than the doing. Love yoga for giving right. me that tip, right? Yes, yes. So let's say that again. Um, action creates momentum. Yes. And what was the rest of that? The thought of doing something is always worse than the actual doing of it. Oh, and creates flow. That's what, yeah, it creates, yeah, and flow. creates flow. Momentum right. and flow. Otherwise, and I think what it is is when you are in indecision, energy is frenetically moving between two poles, whether it's north, south, or polarities. And so instead of being in alignment to make flow happen in a focused decision with intention clarity, it's really confused because mm -hmm. you're confused. So you're energetically, and then that takes up so much more energy in the indecision. I literally, after the decision was made and the conversation was had, even though I was heartbroken and sad, it was literally releasing of stress. And I can specifically, and maybe other people could talk to this too, uh, if they comment, is I had built up in myself so much stress of the indecision that I had gained cortisol weight because cortisol is the mm. stressor that you gain. Mm -hmm. Within 10 days of the decisions being made, I lost 14 pounds, not doing anything different, not not eating it was literally cortisol stress weight because I made a decision and was moving forward with flow. Wow. That's pretty impressive. And it was all, of course, belly weight because that's where the stressors hang mm -hmm. out. Right, <laughs> right. Especially when, it, yeah, when it's cortisol, that's it's belly. Yeah. yeah. I was just in awe of that and thinking that that was a good sign. Your body tells you these symbols. They give you the signs when, when we're not doing the work or not ready to make a decision or we're not uncovering something. Our bodies will, will send us messages like this, whether there are pains in our backs or we gain a weight that's, that's not typical for us. Those are the things that are our bodies trying to wake us up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's our bodies reacting to stress. Yeah. So what do you think has helped you the most in your, in your journey? Oh my goodness. I think there's a lot of self-awareness, mm -hmm. accountability with my humility I think I did a lot of work around loving my shadow side because I think if I if you, we look at people that maybe grew up like me where I, I just created the childhood, I had to be perfect, I'm going to get good grades, I'm not going to make waves because my parents, I don't want to upset them. And they loved me. I had great loving family and we, we had some of the codependent sort of behaviors, but they were loving and caring and we snuggled and had other things. It wasn't a black and white type of thing, which makes it complicated to... Uh, unravel because you want to say, I had a great childhood, really. Mm -hmm. I didn't have horrible things. I had some typical things that happened. I had a bully in grade school and other things like that where you feel awkward in teenage years. But then there's always a mix of things. It's not always 
clean and clear and, and perfect. No relationships are perfect. So taking and piecing a meal out those behaviors that I didn't want to repeat were so key to me becoming aware and loving me and my shadow self. So recognizing that I could be selfish and that somebody could love me for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, did a lot of work, actually worked with a shaman, a fabulous shaman who we did some wonderful parts therapy to visit. That's one of the things you can do mm-hmm. if you have therapy yep. is revisiting your ba- your child, your teenager, your young woman, your masculine. They have all these pieces. And so it was wonderful. And I have this, I love this, this story specifically because I have an old crone named Moira, who is like an old, you know, she's hunched over. She like almost has like the black cloak hidden and she's always quiet and in the background and she doesn't like attention. Mm -hmm. What I learned from her was that nobody pays attention to her in the world, but she is everywhere and she knows truth. Mm -hmm. So if I listen to her and love on her, she will tell me my truth that I need to hear. And if I'm open to hearing any of the truth, not just the good stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Then she's going to be more enlivened and more connected. And then I can integrate her more into who I am. So it was a way of me connecting with that shadow side. She literally was cloaked in black. Mm. <laughs> yes, I think a par- parts work is, it can be extremely valuable. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of modalities people can use that where they actually go to a therapist or a shaman um, with coaching, it's more working on what is it you want to work on? Where do you want to go from this forward? We might have some ideas of looking at specifics of you know childhood wounds or childhood stories to work forward rather than sitting in the in the history of it, which I think mm-hmm. is more of a counseling sort of thing, right? Right, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. For me. And I think one of my favorite things that I learned about me was about attachment theory, which I think is becoming sort of a popular uh, personal growth topic around mm-hmm. the country. I know Amir Levine did a book called Attached that people read, but I have uh, a favorite author because he takes it to another level, both for individuals and in relationship, that Stan Tacton takes as an uh, author and therapist. He has Wired for Love and Dating for Love, and he also has a relationship uh, audio. I think it's only an audio book that's about how to work in relationship. When you have attachment styles, that have very divergent needs and how you become accountable for your own place in these experiences and don't project on each other and create escalation and the stress energy that makes the roller coaster relationship. And it says nothing's wrong with you for being, if you're not as secure, maybe you're more anxious because you had inconsistencies in your relationships as a child, okay. mm-hmm. or if you're an avoidance because you, you had to insulate and become an island essentially all emotionally an island because of whether it was emotional abuse, neglect, or other things going on. That's just how you became as a protector and that there's ways to unfold and become a little more secure and to connect and heal through relationship. And I love Stan Tacton because it is about, we are here on this earth to heal in relationship. We are relational beings. Our DNA, our evolution was created to be relational, to survive, right? Mm -hmm. We weren't meant to be one-on-one or off on our own as a species. So it just builds on that in a beautiful way. So if people are interested in attachment theory, I think that that's a great thing to tap into. And I love Wired for Dating because he gives specific tips and tricks about how to recognize your patterns so that then you're owning and accountable for, oh, why do I always freak out and want to text him 20 times when he hasn't messaged me in an hour? Well, there's, <laughs> there's usually an anxiousness about that. And when we own that, we find ways to self-soothe so that we're not requiring somebody else to take on the job that I should be taking on for myself. Mm-hmm. And then you can have a mirror in front of you if you get to the intimate level with somebody saying, I'm freaking out. And I really wanted to text you 20 times, but I understand that has nothing to do with you and you did nothing wrong, but I need to do some work. But can, can you just be there for me and say, I, I understand, or I can text you a couple times. That would make me feel secure. You can work on that kind of intimacy with someone. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That sounds very valuable. Yeah. So how many different roles are there uh, in, in this theory? Role? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. So there can be a makeup of a mix of things. The basic three are secure attachment, which generally means 
you probably came from a family where uh, you had family, mother and father who were together in a healthy relationship, that you saw love and connection. You didn't necessarily see if there was arguments, you could see there was resolve, but it wasn't necessarily escalated fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, or you were definitely you were connected to your mom. If you're a, if you're a man, that you have a good relationship with your mom. If you're a woman, you had a good relationship with your dad. Those provide you with security mm-hmm. for when you build out into dating relationships. Okay. The insecure, the anxious, is when you may have had inconsistent messages. Perhaps you had a, a parent who was there sometimes but not because of their own insecurities or anxious or whatever history they had growing up that they brought up into parenting. And so if you weren't able to count on them, then you are constantly, there's, it almost has a feeling of neediness, even though it's just, you just didn't ever have the grounding in your childhood to provide you that safe space to then bring that into adulthood. And when we take that time to recognize, I think the self-soothing part of that's key Mm -hmm. and also asking for what you need and finding balance. So you could like, I love that you can be so intimate, say, I'm totally freaking out that you didn't call me when you got to the house. And I don't know why that is, but I think it's probably because of, you know, X, Y, Z, you have an Mm -hmm. example probably. Mm -hmm. And then you get to build intimacy of somebody going, Oh baby, I totally understand. Is there something I can do to help with that? And then you negotiate something that feels good for both in a relationship where I will call you when I leave and I'll call you when I get to the place. So, you know, that's a security for you. If I'm flying, you know, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. And then the final, uh, the third piece that the third type you could be is an avoidance or an okay. island. Uh, different different authors use different language. Okay, and that is the person who had to self soothe so much they didn't entrust upon anybody else doing it, and they become insular mm-hmm. as a way of taking care of themselves because they were there was so much inconsistency or neglect or abuse that may have happened outward, whether it was the primary parents or it could be family members or other experiences that led to that. Mm -hmm. So that then they have an actual difficulty with being close and intimate. And it it actually terrifies them because that doesn't feel normal. And in fact, one of the examples that, that is really interesting is that if somebody is in relationship with somebody who has avoidant tendencies or had had that kind of relationship in their, their childhood, they might be very comfortable and feel loved if they are in the next room with their, they're, they're like in the bedroom and their love is watching TV in the living room. That might feel safe to them, but being right next to each on the couch could actually cause the, the fight or flight response of this is unsafe. Hmm. And it's so interesting to see, but if we know how to handle those things and recognize it as a past trigger, we don't have to make it about the current relationship. We can make it about how to work together and build that intimacy and bear witness. You know, it's if one person is having a triggered moment and needs to share it, the other person is to say, I'm here to listen. And they're not feeling blamed or projected on. And they're just being here as the, as the consistent grounding relationship that maybe wasn't there to re-imprint on that story and maybe help them heal little by little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like it would be good for both partners to to learn about this so that oh, they so. can help each other. Yeah. So if people want to really be aware and do some of that work, for me, it was really insightful. And I have a lot of compassion for my last relationship because I was able to really understand his his attachment style that I didn't know at the time of our relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, you can also have a mix of things. You can be secure with some anxious tendencies, depending on what gets triggered. So I think I am a secure with some, I guess, some, some anxious in my life, depending on what plays out. Some people can be anxious avoidant where they can have a push pull. They want to be close. They want to be far. And then that causes some strife if you don't know how to handle that in relationship. Mm-hmm. And it. so there's a mix of ways that that plays out. And it's just working together to communicate and get really myopic about knowing you're going to do the work together that can make that relationship amazing. Right, right. So I think now that you've really explained it, uh, my sense is that it's probably piqued the interest uh, that (laughs) that perhaps wasn't before. So if you could once again, uh, say the author in the books. Well, I think there's one that's called uh, Attached by Amir Levine. And I definitely we can have that information 
along with her podcast okay. here, mm-hmm. and also Stan Tatkin. And he has some fabulous books. Uh, and all, there's a couple places online that you can take a quiz, maybe a starter quiz. And I think there's one you can do more fully that gives you an idea of where you may play a mm-hmm. role in relationship. Now, you could be more secure with somebody and less secure with a different person, depending on what their attachment style is. So mm-hmm. it's good. It, it gets a little, it can be a little muddy, but if you're like thinking about your life, how you are in a relationship, you can start to work on um, unpacking that when you answer the questions, try to be really honest, and then it'll give you some insight to how to proceed with how you can become accountable and do some work. And I love that Stan Tapkin really gives some incredible tips that are tangible about how to work through some of these things in relationship or with yourself, which is fabulous. Mm -hmm. Cool. So if somebody just wanted to find more information on the internet, attachment theory might be what they'd search on? Yes. And I think looking up, I I really like Stan Tapkin and he has a whole institute that he has workshops, he has materials online, he has a, a ton of YouTube videos of interviews he's done talking about it with different people, uh, which is fantastic, so that you can get a tidbit of uh, a bit here and there about what he, how he explains it mm-hmm. uh, in okay. more detail. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I think you've given a, a very good overview of it too, <laughs> so I think it'll make sense to people. Yeah, it's a way of taking accountability and stepping out of the projection or the blaming, you know, that, 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 mm. that energy can happen in relationship, and we've all fallen prey to that at some point, so... Yes. Stepping out of that and not making it personal, it's an easy way to say, oh, this is just the childhood stuff coming. I can right. see that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That works very much so. Let's see. Let's pretend that you're having uh, coffee at Starbucks with a friend <laughs> <laughs> and they are recovering from a tumultuous relationship and splitting up and and they're asking you for advice. What should... what what should they do to get back into the game? You know, this is let's say it's not somebody you're coaching right now, but sure. just just a, you know giving somebody advice. What what would be some of the the top things you'd say? Well, I would definitely say uh, tell them a little bit more about some of the things I learned about me because generally that helps them feel more connected, of course, mm-hmm. because then I'm I'm sharing my own story. But for me, I definitely think I missed red flags that I could have seen earlier. Mm-hmm. Or questions that if I'd known the meaning of the answer could have directed me differently in making decisions on who I might date or get into a relationship with or even marry. So, or to at least be aware of that to say, are we working on this together before we get deeper into causing the power struggles that might happen that can happen when we're unaware and we're not conscious in relationship. So I would be speaking, if they're ready, of course there has to be a time for mourning a time for some peace settling. But when they're ready to go and they just feel frustrated that they don't want to repeat the same patterns, Mm -hmm. we can definitely talk about, there are key questions that a a woman can ask on a first date and it doesn't have to feel like a job interview. You can just naturally unfold it into conversation to find out something about them, to know if they're a more secure kind of person, if that's really what you're looking for, Mm -hmm. or whether or not there may be uh, unresolved issues with parents. That's one of the things that can come up. Oh, can you share so, with us some of those questions? Ah, yes. It's like, I love saying, so, so okay. tell me about your family. Mm. Are you close to your family? Do you have brothers and sisters? Do you see your mom a lot? Mm-hmm. And if they, and usually people will start to tell, even if it's not telling you the whole story, because you're on a date and people want to share who they are, they're going to introduce you to, whether or not they're close to their parent, mm-hmm. estranged, or if they had a tumultuous time but have made uh, reparations and are close now to the best that they can be. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we're all going to have messiness. So expecting everybody to have had a perfect childhood where they feel comfortable and con- connected with their mom since birth probably isn't going to happen, right? Right, right? So so we have to allow for us to recognize, okay, it's a red flag a little bit if they had that issue growing up. But what have they done now to resolve that? Have they made peace with it? And if they've done some work around that and they can tell you that story, then that's good. That's mm-hmm. good telling you that they're more grounded now. But I think those are the things that can happen. I mean, I've been on dates where I ask this question 
And the dad had been a traveling salesman and an alcoholic, which I, you know, he was a very sweet man that I was on a date with, but I just was like, wow. And he didn't sound like he had resolved from it. So after just two dates, I could decide for me, even though he may be great for somebody else with me and my background, I didn't want to proceed with anything because that did not feel like a good match. You know, I, we would maybe bring out not the best of each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so asking those questions and connecting also to with, as you proceed with dating, maybe you have even within the first two or three months of dating somebody before you're really invested or given up your heart completely, you can have vetting where you have your friends meet them and really make sure that they're seeing what they think of the person and usually your friends will be honest with you and say, uh, this feels good or mm, I'm not so sure about this. Mm-hmm. Well, especially if that's you're asking them to. Well, to, yeah. <laughs> they better be honest if that's what you're asking for. <laughs> right. But so how many of us go on dates and it might be that we never actually ask our friends? I mean, that, and maybe that's there's a tendency there in different types of women in relationships for me, you know, I didn't always do the actual ask of my friends. I just brought them around. Mm. But that's not the Mm -hmm. same as saying, I really want your opinion. And what's true too for us is that we actually do chemically lose the ability to discern when we start to be interested in that, like when we have that attraction and that first several, you know, six months of dating someone, Mm -hmm. we literally chemically lose the ability to discern in our brain because it's evolution trying to make us match up with somebody to, you know, repopulate. Right. So this is the old chemistry affecting us today. And we literally become put on our blinders chemically. Yes. So it's good to have the friends. Am I missing something? And you'll be like, how did you not see the such and such, such and such? I don't see it. So (laughs) yes, I can relate. And I'm sure everyone can. It's hindsight's always wonderful, isn't it? And it's like, wow, how did I miss that? Or why didn't I see that? You're choosing what what to see and what not to see. You're filtering, you're filtering um, (laughs) those rose colored glasses. (laughs) And it's chemical. It's actually part of the brain chemistry happening Mm -hmm. in your amygdala and other things happening that there's brain science behind how you fall in love. And, and it's so intriguing to, to know. And of course the oxytocin, we all know that's the way women fall in love, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that we have to be aware of those things because then if we use our head and our hearts, we can make better decisions and discern. So if at date two, you might say, Oh, he's really sexy. Oh, I'm really drawn to him which should be a red flag to start with if it's such a, you know, lustful attachment when you're just like, ah, oh, because something else is, is, is connecting there unconsciously usually, right? There's okay. usually something deeper that we should look at. But if those red flags are coming up at day two, then it's time just to, you can let go of that and say, I really do want something grounded and safe and calming. Mm-hmm. And you can have that after having the up and down roller coaster relationship of emotions. It's absolutely feasible with tips and tricks and, and just readjusting the dial of our man pickers that can help with that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's balancing the heart with the mind and not absolutely. just, I think so many, especially women, <laughs> tend to just go with the heart. <laughs> and- oh, I think it's what we do. You know, we, we bring our 14 year old selves with our very un incomplete tool belt of dating from, you know, I'm, I say 14 because that's probably when we talked about it the most with everybody we knew, right? Mm-hmm. With all the hormones going. Mm-hmm. And then we bring this into our adult lives. We might be married and then divorced or in long relationships and ending. And we still bring that 14 year old out at the date later when we're like 40. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and wow. we need to have a more discerning eye, a more adult grown up way of looking at how we want to date. How come this isn't taught like in high school or college or Well, we barely get to sex education of the functionality, much less the emotion of things. Um, it's definitely something that I become more aware of with, with having kids myself and trying to help them have conversations about emotions and conflicting feelings and how do you like somebody and not like somebody or like three people at the same time because in hormones that's what happens in middle school high school right mm-hmm. <laughs> and that there's nothing shameful or wrong as long as you're as best honest as you can be and that's it's, and we can learn these things and evolve these things by being better role models for our kids my favorite 
takeaway from all of this and in helping women is that my why for doing this is it's helping me then be my best self in how I go out and meet and consider another role model for my children to come into my life. Yes. And to role model a good relationship better than what I had done before with different tools and and modeling that, mm-hmm. living living that experience with them to see it is the way to do it. And also, of course, help them along the way talking about it as best I can. I have boys, so it's a little harder. You know, they don't right. want mom to talk about anything <laughs> with romance or hormones. <laughs> they get embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I, I know that can be hard. It's I think it's a lot easier for the male male figure to take that on yeah, with boys. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, you've taken all of this. This is really great. I think there's a lot of really good information here. Thank you. Um, you've taken all of this and you've created a webinar series. I which I just, I mean, I'm in awe. I'm very, uh, of your doing this. Uh, let's see, you called it what? How to choose the perfect man and embrace the love you deserve. Yes, it's fabulous and fearless over 40. And the reason for this, I say choose, is because... I think for me, when I think back to how I was perfectionist and desiring love and had some of my own codependent savior mentalities that I brought from childhood because I thought that's how I had to be, mm-hmm. I also wasn't very good about discerning and selecting the love of my life. I was looking for someone to love me and then I would grab onto that, right? There's that different energy of right. I'm taking the one that shows up versus I'm choosing from the many that show up. And I'm also a librarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I actually love thinking about dating in relation to librarianship. And when you have a best selling book, it's in high demand, it's in high circulation at the library. Mm-hmm. It is, it is not, it's on many nightstands, moving through, seeing different people and places. And so when it's in high demand, you want to be in high circulation when you're dating, like the best-selling book, right? That feels good. Mm -hmm. And then you get better choice amongst many uh, who's showing up to take you on dates. I think, too, another way that I look at it, especially for over 40 when you might be disgruntled or frustrated or you've done dating apps or you've had all these experiences where the dates, you know, didn't show up the way you wanted them to show up is... I I help people have a little more fun returning to dating and that we look at it as showing up on the date for information. There's a way to show up and learn. Every time somebody takes you on a date, there's a reason you were connected. So identify what that was and then do some work if it's something you don't like. Like maybe maybe they do drink too much and then you're like, wow, I'm still drawing that. Or even if you're not attracted to them, the goal is really to say, what are the things showing up that I do like? It's, it's, we in library land have something called censorship versus selection. And it's about attitude. Are you showing up on the date for reasons to not date him again? Or are you showing up for reasons to maybe consider dating him again? Mm-hmm. And attitude and perception will completely rule our realities. So knowing that will help us make better choices. Oh, I really like that he was so loving and caring about his family, but man, he wants to live out in the country. I'm a city girl. Like that mm. can be discerning. And then you can appreciate the things that were connected and then know that as you work through dating, more appropriate, connected uh, men who have the things you're looking for will show up in your life. They kind of fall in and out of place on their own. And then you get to choose from the men that show up. Mm-hmm. Who are you most that they're aligned with you, aligned with your vision in life, and and make that choice for your life. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that when you're getting back into the dating scene over forty, that it's better to to date a bunch of different people, so you can really get a sense of what you want and what you don't want. Is that- I absolutely think that's true, especially if it's been a while and. What we want and don't want, our list of what we're looking for changes over the age of 40. Absolutely. You know, we're not just looking for emotional and physical connection and having fun together, like when you're 20. Mm-hmm. You're looking for, does somebody have a vision that matches mine? Like I said, you know, if somebody raises horses and that's not your thing, that's never going to be congruent, right? Right, right. So where do you want to be in five years, 10 years, 15 years? Do you, are you a traveler like me or are you not? Do you want to be a homebody? 
we, those are the things that are going to be important to us. So you can make better choices about the big picture and have better success for, for lasting love. That's the goal, right? Right. Right. Hmm. Okay. Cool. So you, you've talked about being a librarian. I know you call yourself the rock star librarian. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? (laughs) I can. Uh, It's, it's a moniker that uh, came about in probably the late nine, no, no, probably mid two thousands. I've been a attendee and participant in the city of Black Rock city and for Burning Man for several years. And that people give themselves fun names to be mm-hmm. more playful and in return, I think, to that wonder of childhood mm-hmm. and awe out there because there's art and creativity and things to participate in joyfully so we connect as people. Uh-huh. And so uh, I like Rockstar Librarian because if you look up the definition of Rockstar in the Oxford English Dictionary, okay, it says that you are a celebrity within a particular sphere which means you are the rock star of your own life. Ah, okay. And so I am a rock star and I'm a librarian. <laughs> <laughs> Neat. And you've, you've been to, from what I understand, many, many Burning Man. Yes, I've yeah. been to 18, including Africa Burn in South Africa in 2017. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What uh, yeah. motivated you to go to South Africa? I, well, I love international travel and I've actually been to Africa before and it was mm. on my list to do again. And I needed to do something for me following my second divorce. And I decided to put that as a, as a pin on my timeline on my calendar of something that was not going to move. Do you know what I mean? When you mm-hmm. go through change and relationship ends, you have a lot of moving parts. So if you can put a push pin in a schedule a calendar and know that's not, that's an anchor for you. I'm heading there. So I did that. And I also was motivated because the Africa burn size population is about 13,000 people. And the first year I went to Burning Man in Nevada, it was in 1998 and there were about 13 or 14,000 people. So I liked the idea of revisiting the size of an event like I went to the first time for Burn. Because mm-hmm. now Nevada. it's like over 50, isn't it, in Nevada? It's 80,000. 80, getting wow. maybe 90 this year. They're shooting for 100,000 possibly. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and it has, I think I like when it's smaller, there's some more grit and rawness. Mm-hmm. Maybe the art isn't as big, but they do some amazing things that are, are fun and joyful and playful in a different way than being so smooth around the edges, which just happens when you have big art, big installations, which I love too. It just is nice to have a balance of both. And I liked revisiting that in an international spot. Mm-hmm. Oh, neat. So that was last year you did that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And one of the things that I do for Burning Man that people might know me for is that everything at Burning Man is decentralized. Every camp that does something runs it on their own. There's no coordinated schedule but for the opportunity to submit an event to the who at when where which is their printed guide but it only holds a like a sliver of the events that really do happen out there if people actually get it in by the deadline okay so what I do because I really wanted to know I'm a music geek I've been a choir geek my whole life I love Hmm. singing so I always want to know where the music was and if you walked a long time across a dusty, cold desert, which at the time, that's what happened in the early, the late 90s, early 2000s for me, I wanted to know maybe what was over there before I headed over there so I could maybe make a different choice. It was totally out of pure laziness, I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> for me and my friends, <laughs> to coordinate. I just would reach out to the camps that made music and started to gather the information. And so it was like a spreadsheet, a couple years and it slowly evolved into a booklet and this incredible, now it's been on an app if you want to have it on digital uh, as well as print. And it's a gift that I just give because one of the tenets of Burning Man is to give your gifts. You're not bartering, you're not selling anything. So right. I gave the gift of consolidating and curating information so that people could go find and dance the joyful music they were interested in. Cool. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's nice. So you've been able to uh, combine your desire to be of service with your interests. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's just got a a gift that got out of hand. Everybody just loves it. (laughs) It's adorably sweet. 
And it, who knew it was going to grow into something, but I have a wonderful group of people and other burners who've been great supports so that we could scale it and make it available uh, in a database. Now I gather things in a database and make a, both the, the booklet or the printed guide as well as it being digital for people to choose what works for them. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. How long does it take to do that? Well, I've got it down to a science and mostly it's, you know, just making sure to send a lot of emails to make sure people are wanting to be a participant in the, putting their music in the guide that year. Each of the camps get to choose. Some choose not to because they like the idea of discovery and I mm, respect that. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. It, we just, I just reach out and we, we send out information and then I just follow up and make sure from the camps I know usually like to be in it. Mm-hmm, so just make sure mm-hmm. I touch points and then it all just comes together in a whirlwind and then I take all that data and then we design the booklet and send it out. (laughs) Wow. Cool. Yeah. Oh, this has been wonderful. I think this is so valuable. It's, it's a topic that uh, I haven't covered yet and um, you did such a wonderful job. Thank Thank you so much. I think too. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I think if people are interested in further information about, uh, Dating Over 40 and getting connected. One of the things that I did do with the Fabulous and Fearless Over 40 uh, online series is gather a whole lot of different love experts that are mentors I've loved for years, including Gay Hendricks, Alison Armstrong, Mm -hmm. Ariel Ford, a number of other wonderful experts who have been working in the relationship and dating sphere for a long time. Because I want to make 2018 the year of love, not just for, you know, the people I work with, but, I, you know, I love the idea of it inspiring me. And so this is a free webinar with a video series, 30 minutes of each expert. And nice. so if people are interested, there's going, I think we're going to be doing a full encore for the series. It's been running through February, the month of love. Okay. But there will definitely be an encore at the beginning of March. And I would love for your listeners, if they want to sign up, they can go to fabulous and fearless over 40 mm-hmm. and you can either do it with 40 written or with the numbers it'll okay. go to the same place.com okay. and then you just sign up and then you will get the email letting you binge watch all the amazing experts you want to and learn some amazing tips and tricks about where they feel are really great tips and tools to help you break free from patterns uh, find that lasting love and do it in a fun and playful way. And they each have different techniques and wonderful stories. And a lot of them have gifts, too, that you can worksheets or meditations, some amazing tips and tricks that they give just freely so that everybody can walk away with something to help, you know, shift something inside. And I've had a number of people already participating. They're so excited about what they've learned and the positive energy that is on this series that it's just it's filling my heart. It's just I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be able to host and gift this out to everybody. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so also on the, the podcast website, realjanine.com, and that's J-A-N-E-A-N, I'll have the link that they can just click on to get right to oh, your, your page too. So great. Wonderful. That's awesome. So once again, how can people get a hold of you? My, you can email me at kate at rockstarlibrarian.com. Or you can do it when you are on the fabulous and fearless over 40.com website, then you'll get the welcome email if you sign up, and then you can email me directly if you have further questions about anything. Great, great. Thank you so much, Kate. This has been wonderful. Thank really you for appreciate me, it. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Okay. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kate Houston. I want to thank Kate for sharing her story and inspiring insights with us. Do you have one or two friends, maybe more, who would benefit from this conversation? Please share the love. It's my joy to be able to have interesting conversations with people who have information and perspectives that can enrich our lives, and your help in getting the word out is greatly appreciated. The podcast website, once again, is www.realjanine.com, J-A-N-E-A-N. You will find pictures of my guests so you can see what they look like. There's show notes, links to their websites, and the opportunity to listen or download episodes and sign up for my email list, which comes out only twice a month and always includes a recipe. You can subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Do you have a minute to leave a rating and a short review? That would be awesome. 
Take care and be well.